Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Okay, we move into chapter 11. This vision is consistent with the statue vision of chapter 2, but it's also different. The statue had four kingdoms. Here, we're only going to mention three. In verse 11-1, it's debated who is stating this. Some say it's the angelic messenger. Others say it is Daniel. We don't know for sure. It's highly likely that verse 1 of chapter 11 is actually the concluding verse of chapter 10. Should it be? Um, because he's saying, do, do you know why I've come? Um, I, I can't stay very long. We're still at war in the heavenlies, and I'm, I'm, I'm about to explain this thing to you before I go, though. I'll have to go back. Because the only other one fighting right now, only other one fighting with me is Michael, and I left him all alone. I'm going to have to go. But Michael and I have been fighting this battle since Darius came to power. So let's get started. That's how I think we should hear that. Okay. So we move into verses 2 through 4 of chapter 11. And we're going to cover more than 200 years of Persian history with one verse. Um, Cyrus won't be the only king. There will be more kings. But the fourth one. 200 years later, becomes the focus. This would be Xerxes the Great, or Xerxes I, son of Darius the Great, and Atosa, who is the daughter of Cyprus the Great. The Persian Empire tried to wipe out the Jewish people during Xerxes, such a very different leader than Cyrus. Um, His goal, he wants to stamp them out of existence. The story of the book of Esther Um, through the plot of Haman to do away with the Jewish people, occurs during the reign of Xerxes. And you can hear how they're very hesitant in Esther to admit that they're Jewish, whereas when we're looking at Daniel and the other three Hebrew sons, they have no problem saying they're Jewish. Something Things have changed. The rising warrior that is mentioned is Alexander the Great. Um. We already noted that his empire splits into four parts upon his death, which occurs in 323 BC. Mostly, we're going to be talking about only two of those four. Um, so, we, two of those people, we just we don't care about. They're not a big deal to us. But Syria, the north, is going to include the Holy Land, and Egypt is to the south. Um, And Israel is really kind of caught between them. Even though they're technically part of the north, um, they lie between where the the king of the north and the king of the south would end up doing battle in their territory. And so it's a a dangerous place to be. Verses 5 through 9, we believe the king of the south is Ptolemy. P-T-O-L-E-M-I, E-M-Y. My Wesley Study Bible says Ptolemy III um, but the historian Josephus and the books of the Maccabees disagree. It's it's unclear. Um, let me tell you what I think. I think, oops, my page is messing up. Okay. Following Alexander's death, Ptolemy I takes Egypt. Seleucus, 
who becomes the founder of the Solution, the Seleucids, takes the north. Seleucus was ambitious, and Israel was disputed territory between these two former friends. When they had an uneasy peace already, but when they die, Ptolemy II and Antiochus II actually battle. There's 70 years of fighting that take place before an uneasy peace is reached. So once again, we have here's another place that 70 shows up. Ptolemy II has a daughter named Bernice, and she is given to Antiochus II in marriage. The agreement was that Antiochus would divorce his wife, Laodice, and marry um, Bernice. Antiochus and Bernice marry, and they have a son. But when Ptolemy II dies in 246 BC, Antiochus no longer feels loyalty to that agreement. He takes Laodice back, and Laodice poisons him, and then has Bernice, Bernice's son, and all who came with her killed. Ptolemy III succeeds his father, and avenges his sister's murder. Okay, so this is Laodice's son, who's Ptolemy III. No, excuse me. This is other kingdom. Ptolemy III succeeds his father, Ptolemy II, and comes to avenge his sister, Berenice's murder. He attacks Syria, and he kills Laodice. He humbles Seleucus II, Laodice's son, who is now king of the north. Ptolemy III lives four years longer than Seleucus II. Maybe you can see how that all, all that applies. I hope it didn't mess you up when I misspoke earlier. I don't want to have to stop and try to erase that. Okay. In verse 7, Ptolemy III shared common roots with Bernice, um, common ancestry that they share. Doesn't mean not father, son. They are siblings. Okay. Verses 10 through 19, the sons of Seleucus II, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, continue battles for territory. Seleucus III was the first ruler, um, but only very briefly. He is succeeded by his brother Antiochus III. Antiochus III takes the Holy Land from the Ptolemies. He is defeated by Ptolemy IV at a battle at Rapha and has to give Palestine back to the Ptolemies. So you see all that conflict that's happening. If only it were over, but it's not. Antiochus III then attacks Egypt again and defeats Ptolemy V. Jews help Antiochus because they resented being under the control of the Egyptian Ptolemies. This ended in an extended siege. They initially welcomed Antiochus III, but this is going to prove very, very foolish. He eventually turns his destruction on them. In verse 17, Antiochus III gives his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V as wife, as part of a negotiated peace pact. He's hoping that through his daughter, he can gain influence there, 
and eventually take control of it. You know, she has children. Her children hit the throne. Maybe we poison the other fella. She's my daughter. I can, and I, I get that. You would have thought that would have kept them from engaging in these royal marriages, but, but it doesn't. Um, okay. However, this fails to happen. It's not successful. Cleopatra is not able to help him gain control. Now, I need to say, um, and she's not able to because she's not faithful to her husband. So she doesn't find favor with him. It goes badly. Okay, this is not the famous Cleopatra that we think of. This is one of her ancestors, though. The famous Cleopatra doesn't come around until about 100 years later. Verses 18 and 19, um, with things going well in Egypt, Antiochus III turns his attention toward Asia Minor and Greece. Hannibal of Carthage helps him, but isn't able to help enough. The Roman general Lucius Cornelius Scipio defeats and humiliates him. So he has to return home. He's desperate for money. He pillages the Babylonian temple and ends up being murdered by an angry mob for doing so. It's the last line they weren't allowed, they weren't willing to let him cross. In verses 20 through 28, so Lucius III follows his father, Antiochus III. And he enacts some taxes. He sends an official for the glory of the kingdom. Um, It's a plan to pillage Jerusalem's temple. He is assassinated by his brother, Antiochus IV. Most of verses 21 through 45 apply to Antiochus IV, who is the contemptible person of verse 21. Um, He's also called Antiochus Epiphanes. And so sometimes like in dictionary entries, you'll see Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's usually either Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, But it confuses me that it's not always the same one because I wonder if it's a different one. He does not come to power legitimately. He kills his brother, who's currently king, and imprisons his brother's son, his nephew, um, so that he can come to the throne. That's an illegitimate way for that to happen. Other sources call Antiochus IV a flatterer, a smooth talker. Um, he gives himself the title of Epiphanes, which means illustrious. Others mocked him with a name that sounds similar, but Epiphanes, instead of Epiphanes, Epiphanes, um, which means madman. Interesting how the difference can be between how we see ourselves and how other people see us. Verses 22 through 27, the prince of the covenant is the high priest Onias um, in verse 22. He pretends to make peace with the king of the south, but he's only being deceitful. Um, there'll be a good, a great battle, but it's not going to change the balance of power. And he will ultimately consolidate his power in um, verses 23 and 24. Verses 25 through 27, the first war with Egypt occurs. Though Egypt's army is larger, they are unable to defeat Antiochus Epiphanes. The kings of the north and the south pretend friendship with one another, but both of them are only doing so in order to hopefully catch the other one with the guard down. Verse 27 says, 
all evil will eventually find its end. Um, it, it cannot last forever. God wins in the end. Antiochus did some horrible, horrible things to the Jewish people. These are referenced in verses 28 and 30. You can also find more of the story in the book of the Maccabees. There are actually four books of the Maccabees. Um, the Jewish people elevate two of them, first and second Maccabees, to um, deuterocanonical, so uh, as a second canon of Scripture, so not as authoritative as um, the books of the Bible, but really close. And tell of the events that ha- began to happen in 175 BC when he athr- ascends to the throne. Alexander the Great had started the movement of Hellenization, which is the spread of the Greek culture. But there was room for cultural variation under Alexander the Great. Antioch Epiphanes, however, wants cultural totalitarianism. Um, he wants a centralized, dictatorial, completely subservient people who are all alike. So the, that means that the Jewish faith and identity has to be eliminated. He kills the high priest, Onias, um, because he resisted this movement, and he installs Onias's brother, Joshua, who was loyal to the Greeks. Uh, as evidence of this, Joshua immediately changes his name to Jason, which is a, a Hellenized version. Antiochus allowed Menelaus to then purchase the position of high priest away from Jason. The Jews were appalled that the position of high priest could be bought and sold. But they were even more appalled because Menelaus was not a descendant of Aaron. At least Jason was a descendant of Aaron, of the right tribe to be a priest. Um, he, but Menelaus has no, no connection to the priesthood. He's just bought it. When Menelaus um, gets summoned to go see Antiochus for failing to raise taxes. He had promised, when he bought the position, he promised Antiochus that he had raised taxes. Uh, the, the amount of money that the emperor would get from the area would go up under his leadership, and it didn't, because it turned out the people didn't have that much. He leaves his brother, Lysimachus, um, in charge, and he steals the sacred temple vessels again. They were allowed to bring them home when Cyrus let them go home. And now this dude has stolen them. And that causes rioting in the streets. Jason then retakes Jerusalem from Menelaus, while Antiochus IV is focused on other matters. The rumor has come to them that Antiochus is dead. This this emboldens them. Um, He was humiliated by defeat in Egypt, and he's frustrated with this rumor of his death. So when he arrives in Israel to put down this rebellion, he is furious and he descends like fire. He kills thousands of people and reinstalls Menelaus as high priest. Later news of rebelling in the area leads to outlawing of circumcision, to demanding that they cannot study the Torah, they can't keep Sabbath, they can't observe the dietary laws. Um, he even placed a statue of Zeus in the Jerusalem temple, um, the god he believed to be inhabiting him. So this particular statue of Zeus could have borne a strong resemblance to, to himself, um, and he sacrificed pigs on the altar there. He then took all the sacred items, including the seven-armed menorah, and um, 
cleaned out the treasury and took it all with him. These are the the events that are being described in verses 29 through 35. In verse 30, the ships of Kittim or Kittim um, or Cyprus, depending on what your um, translation says, are Roman naval vessels who come to the assistance of the Egyptians. In verse 33, it says to fall by sword and flame, suffer captivity and plunder. Antiochus Epiphanes killed 80,000 Jews. He took another 40,000 Jews prisoner, and then he sold 40,000 of them to other people for slaves. He robbed more than a million dollars of value in, in our value today from their temple. In verse 35, though he seems invincible, not even this kind of strength is going to last forever. The end's coming. Not yet, but the end is coming. Verses 36 through 39, Antiochus Epiphanes does declare himself not only a god, but a god more powerful and over any other. So he declares himself God most high. And that kind of arrogance simply cannot go unanswered. In verses 40 through 45, we have the final conflict. Antiochus V follows Antiochus IV, and he will be the last ruler in the Greek Empire. The Romans conquer Syria and become king of the north. They defeat the Greek king in Egypt, who's king of the south, and the rest of the Mediterranean world. Ultimately, they destroy the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Some see these chapters of Daniel as having future application, the final end of days, the end of all things. Um, Much has been written and taught about these events, including things like rapture, tribulation, um, very specific timelines. Um, They pick up, they interact with Revelation in in a very um, intricate way. And Daniel, the book of Daniel plays a large role in a lot of the theories. We call that eschatology, the study of end times. Um, Now, I've said this before um, with like Isaiah, that prophecies can have more than one fulfillment, one then, one now, or one then, one later, or one soon future and one long future. Some see future prophecy as being all of chapters 10 through 12. That's all about the ultimate final end. So they would say that none of this applied to Alexander the Great and Antioch Epiphanes and or any of these other empires. It has to do with the end of all things. Um, I'm not so sure about that. They also point to um, chapter 11, verse 14, in those times, to verse 20, 19 ends with the demise of the former leader, and they say there's a long interlude before verse 20 starts, and that the contemptible person is the Antichrist or the forerunner of the Antichrist that John talks about in his revelation. Verse 35, um, there's a discussion of until the time, until time of the end, for there is still an interval until the time appointed. And so that lends to the idea that there's a large gap of time in there. We have to talk about the abomination of desolations. That gets a lot of um, discussion time 
when you start talking about eschatology. The King James Version renders verse 31, the abomination of desolations. Um, and it's a main key part in end times theology. Um, we believe it it was the sacrificing of a pig, but others try to figure out what would be the most abominable thing um, about the end of time. There are many who feel that not everything from these chapters um, can be found fulfilled, uh, at least through Antiochus the Fourth, and they they show reference to Matthew chapter twenty four verse fifteen, where Jesus says the real abomination was still in the future. Um, Paul references Daniel eleven thirty six in Second Thessalonians two verses three and four. Some some biblical scholars believe that the Antichrist will be Jewish and homosexual based on this passage from Daniel because it says that um, he will have no regard for the God of his ancestors or for the love of a woman. Um, He is said to, they say the Antichrist will hide both of these from popular knowledge, like he'll hide that he's Jewish and um, won't won't want to be open about being homosexual. I think they're jumping to conclusions, but you decide for yourself. More biblical scholars believed that Jesus is the one beloved of women for whom the Antichrist will have no respect. Um, Desire is used here in the same way it is in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, the idea being that all women desire to bear the Messiah. Um, Mary says, I am blessed among women. Blessed am I among women in her Magnificat in Luke. In chapter 11, verses 40 through 45, If we have a view to the end of all things, then verses 40 through 45 are the final battle, the the great battle of Armageddon, which is just Armageddon, by the way. The the mountain of Megiddo is the plain near Har-Megiddo, which is what the word Armageddon is, which I learned when I went to Israel. Um, We'll get more on that when we cover the book of Revelation. But in this battle, a confederation of kings comes against the Antichrist in a battle in the Holy Land. They pitch their tents as they prepare for battle between the sea and the Holy Mountain in verse 45. The exact entities, if that's our interpretation, are unknown. Um, The king of the south may be Egypt or an Arab community. The north may be the Antichrist domain. Um, Some say it's Russia. Um, That was a particularly common interpretation as I grew up in that Cold War era where we were so afraid of Russia, which is another empire that has come and gone. Okay, if we move into chapter 12, in contemporary Christian millennialism, verses 36 through 45 are about the career of the Antichrist. So chapter 12 is about the salvation of Israel and the coming kingdom of Christ. Discussion of resurrection is a little odd for Old Testament Judaism. Um, in Old Testament Jewish thought, they really didn't have a fully developed sense of, of resurrection, and many Jews do not today. This life is what there is. <clears throat> However, as they looked around and said, God promi- God is a good God, and God is a just God, and God promises that justice, that the right thing will be happen. But we're not always seeing the right thing happen in this life. 
Evil people prosper and good people don't. So if God is a good and just God, then there must be something after this life that we see where the scales are righted, where justice is enacted. However, it seems very developed here in this chapter of Daniel. Um, And this would have been written during the time of the exile, like right at the end of the exile. Um, So there's been a, there is a long history of the idea of resurrection. Michael, the angel reappears and he's associated with this battle. We saw him in chapter 10, 13, 10, 21. You'll also see him in Jude chapter 1, verse 9 and Revelation 12, 7. He's called an archangel in Jude. And as such, um, he is Satan's true opposite. Satan is not the opposite of God. God is far superior to Satan. Satan is also not the, uh, the evil opposite of Jesus because Jesus was God in a human form. Actually, the highest of the angels would, of the good angels remaining, would be the equal of the highest of the evil angels who left heaven. Daniel depicts Michael as a guardian and protector of Israel, as I said earlier. There is a coming time of trouble and anguish. Um, A similar statement can be found in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, Some say this was the time of Antiochus IV. Some say this was the time of the Holocaust. And some say it will be the time of the Great Tribulation, the final end that we'll talk more about with Revelation. Jesus um, also references this passage in Matthew 24, 21. The Great Tribulation folks um, here cross-reference this with with Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Um, The time of the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls. Whatever time it applies to, there is a promise of deliverance, which is for me why I just, I cannot get interested in trying to figure out the final timelines. Evil empires rise and fall. Evil dictators in whatever form they come, businessmen, presidents, emperors, oligarchs, kings, whatever form, they rise and they fall. God is present through the bad and present through the good with God's people. Yes, sometimes things are hard and sometimes they are better, and that is life on earth. And it will continue until God ends it. And regardless how it goes for me, things are okay because I belong to God and God is with me. I just, I can't get into making the timelines and getting getting all worried. Um, but almost every president we've ever had in some way has been connected to this mark of the beast and um, all of this. And I just, I can't, I can't rock with that. Okay. So there is a promise, even here in chapter 12, of deliverance. But we also see it's not a promise of deliverance for everybody. It's a promise for the faithful, for those who are written in the book, um, who have been noted as belonging to God. Um, This corresponds with the Lamb's Book of Life that we'll talk about in Revelation. Um, Romans 11, 25-27 say, for those who belong to Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about um, resurrection. Resurrection. 